So this morning we'll be in 1 Samuel 25, so please begin turning there with me. 1 Samuel 25. We continue our study in this book, looking at uh, a different side of David in this particular passage, and so we'll look at that see what it has to say about our own lives and our own walks with our Lord. So before we do so, let's go to the Lord in prayer ask for his help with the text. Father, as we come to your word, we recognize that in it alone is found the source of our hope, and our hope is in our Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead, the fact that he now sits next to you interceding on our behalf even now as we come to you in worship. And so our prayer is that as we come to your word, that you would use it to convict us of our sin, those places in our lives, those many, many places where we fall short of your goodness and your mercy, and we pray your goodness and mercy upon us as we, as we deal with that sin, and as we seek to learn more about you, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to do so. Teach us from this text today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I read through this passage today, it kind of made me think of some different odd pairings that I've seen recently. Particularly, Murray High just had its uh, prom, and you know with prom comes Grand March and all the uh, festivities that I'm uh, so fond of. And so when I looked at this, I thought I looked at the list of the Grand March pairings, like the kids who had who decided to go to prom together, and I thought there are some really odd pairings on this list. You know, I really don't pay any attention to the students' relationships at school because they're really unpredictable and short, and so I just don't really care all that much about that kind of thing. But I was interested to see how some of the people had paired up just knowing the kids' personalities and the way they think and act and thought some of these are really, really strange. And then I wondered if anyone ever, like, looked at like, for instance, my marriage and thought that was a strange pairing or or maybe you guys do. I don't know. Uh, or just that, you know, you think about these kinds of things. Well, maybe there are some odd pairings out there that we don't that we're not aware of. I've often looked at couples or friends and thought must be funny how they've ended up together. They're so different from one another. You know, what kind of stories must have happened in order to see that they would end up together? The Lord has his ways that are beyond ours. Obviously, he matches up folks for his reasons, and they may seem odd at the time, but they ultimately have some meaning and purpose. We come to understand more and more, I think, as we as we grow together. And so in our story today, we're going to see this same idea a few times, not only with this marriage of Nabal and Abigail, but also with David's own shift in personality and his seeming, seemingly having a multiple personality episode kind of thing going on in this story. We're also going to see it in the fact that the Lord orchestrates things that are seemingly unrelated in order to bring mercy and grace to the life of his, to the lives of his people, particularly in his king David. And so as we look at this text this week, I want to consider two main points. Grace that doesn't make any sense, 
and then sin that doesn't make any sense. And so as we do that, I'm going to read the text. We'll read 1 Samuel 25 in its entirety. You may remain seated. This is a lengthy bit of text, but it is important for us to, to read and hear the entire thing. So 1 Samuel 25, starting at verse 1. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep at Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal and his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be with you, and peace be with your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did, no, we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. When David's men came, young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is this son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to the men who come from I don't know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told, all, told him all of this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, who were 200, and while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us. We suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both night and by day, all that we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep, already prepared, and five seahs, of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. She did not tell her husband Nabal. And she rode on a donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain. Behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all of this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of that belonged to him, and has returned no, or he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemy of David, 
And more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belonged to him. When Abigail saw David, she, hur- she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at, at his feet and said, o- On me alone, my lord, be, your, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Net, let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for his name is, so he is, Nabal his, it is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as, he, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will continually make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you as long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the, of the, living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies shall sling out as, the, as a hollow of the sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord taking vengeance himself. And when the Lord has dealt with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and avenging myself with my own hand. As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you, have hurt, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male." Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So he told him nothing, or she told him nothing until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him. And he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has avenged this insult I received from the hand of Nabal, and has kept me back from, from his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail and Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take, to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with, her, bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took a Hinnom of Jezreel 
and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. Amen. This is God's word. So just a quick review. Remember last week we looked at how Saul was chasing after David and Saul was in a cave. Well, it just so happened that Saul's, uh, Saul had went into the cave that David and his men were hiding in. David hid and cut off the robe of um, Saul, you remember, didn't actually kill him but spared his life and it made him feel guilty. And Saul and David had this interaction, actually a peaceable interaction there. And so now we come to the text, and I think it's interesting that we have at the very beginning of this text and the very end of this text kind of these little bookends, and in the middle we have this story concerning David and Nabal and Abigail. And so the first thing that we look at is the fact that Samuel has died. All of a sudden, Samuel dies. He's a major player in the story for the first half of the book or so, and he's died, and he gets one verse that kind of talks about that. And so we do hear that all of Israel assembles for the funeral because this is a man of integrity. No one can say, outside of probably Saul, I don't like Samuel. He's a bad guy. You know, Samuel was always seeking to do right. He was dedicated to his task. Unfortunately, Samuel died during a time of much turmoil in Israel. We, we are currently reading about that. Saul is on the throne, and David, the true king that Samuel anointed, being pursued like a criminal. Not a whole lot to talk about here with Samuel. We've, we've talked about his life at length, other than we, we will see him in glory one day. I think that's fascinating to think about. He was a saint that looked forward to the day of Jesus Christ. He saw it, and he was glad. And next, I want to deal with the last couple of verses of of this, verses 43 and 44, before we get to the heart of the story, just to kind of talk about this. And David's marrying of several women, David's polygamy. We see that, uh, you know, we know that David is married to Saul's daughter, and now he wants Abigail as a wife, and then he gets Ahinoam also somewhere along the way. And so I want to make sure that we are clear on this uh, because this is a question that was often dodged when I was around, when I was a kid and would ask these questions in like Sunday school and youth group and was never really given a clear answer, uh, frankly, because I think that the people who were teaching me probably didn't really know. um, And that's fine. But polygamy or being married to multiple husbands or multiple wives, even if you're David, the man after God's own heart, is absolutely wrong. Uh, scripture forbids it. Jesus forbids it in his teaching. Polygamy is often practiced in Scripture by some of the rulers, but it is never right. Just because it happens doesn't mean that it's okay for us to then follow suit. And so we need to be careful. God's design was one woman and one man. And so David's delve into polygamy here is a little puzzling for us. But consider there are other character problems I think that we're beginning to see here in David as well. So maybe it isn't too far-fetched to think that he might want multiple wives. And he, by the time he dies, he has multiple wives, multiple, multiple wives and children with several of them. 
And so I want to make this point again. It's important for us to see that none of us are immune to sin, even the worst kinds. We're going to look at this later, uh, particularly. David, who up to this point in the story has kind of lived above reproach, has now almost slaughtered an entire farm of people and has married several women. So we have to be careful as we go through life. Sin is crouching at the door, as God told, remember, as God told Cain, we have to master it. And so I think that's important for us to see that here. Um, just because David married multiple people, that does not give us license to do so. And it is absolutely wrong. It is adultery. And so we need to see it as such. And so first, let's look at uh, this point that grace that doesn't make sense. One of the interesting things about the story is that there are lots of occurrences that really don't make sense. What I mean by that is we would expect the opposite thing to happen. Something that we would expect the opposite to occur, but it doesn't. And so when these expected things don't occur, it's the people are blessed as a result of that. And so first, I want to look at David's protection of the shepherds of Nabal. Um, imagine being out in the field. You're just out in the field doing what you've been told to do by your master when all of a sudden an army that probably looks like a ragtag bunch because that's pretty much what they are starts walking through your land. Pretty incredible. One of them has this giant sword and they're walking through and not only, again, they're, they're not an army like we would think, like Saul's army, maybe outfitted with uniforms and that sort of thing. They're not supporting a country. They're kind of this fugitive army. They're on the run. Remember, they formed up together because they were kind of all angry and they were all debtors or criminals or something like that. They're hungry. They're thirsty. They're tired. And they happen upon a sheep pasture with nice watering holes places to rest, and plenty of meat. Yet the expected thing doesn't happen. What would we expect to happen for these men to just start killing the sheep and eating at will? In fact, David was once a shepherd. Don't forget that. He had some experience with this. He kind of even talks as if he knows what's going on, talking about the shearers, the fact that there's going to be a party soon, that sort of thing. He does the opposite. He takes care of Nabal's men. He walks with them. One of Nabal's men said, they were a wall to us. Look at verses 6 and 7. This is David talking to, to how they should greet Nabal. He says, and thus you shall greet them. Peace be with you. Peace be with your house. And peace be on all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us. And we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time that they were in Carmel. What does that mean? Well, what do shepherds do every night before they go to sleep? They count all the heads. They've missed none of them. Not a single one of them. What about verse 15? Verse 15. Yet the men were very good to us. We suffered no harm. We did not miss anything. When they were in our fields, as long as we went with them, they were a wall to us, both night and by day. And all the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. 
So what did David's men do? They protected the flock. Verse 21, same idea. David had said, surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed to him and he returned to me evil for good. David has taken care of Nabal's flock this entire time. Why? It probably has something to do with the fact that David's a man of integrity. He doesn't do what you would expect in this situation, just rob him of the sheep. But he, even though he wouldn't miss just a few of them, he has 3,000 sheep. Remember, he's a very wealthy man. And so then how does Nabal reply? Well, we hear some harsh words concerning Nabal, uh, concerning his, his character. So how he replies probably like we would think he would, verse 10 and 11. Nabal answered David's servant, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? Which is kind of a, an insult to him. He's a nobody. Remember, but everyone in Israel knew who David was. Who is this son of Jesse? Who is? Or, there are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. What's he calling David? Just a common criminal. Isn't he that guy that the king's chasing after and trying to kill? And then David's response, of course, is kind of strange to us, considering he just spared 3,000 sheep. He now wants to go kill every man in Nabal's house. Strap on your sword. And the men do that, and David straps on his own sword, and they take 400 men into a farm where likely the, the, the biggest weapon is maybe like a pitchfork or something. And he's going in to kill every single man, every single thing in the house of Nabal. And we'll talk about that in a second. And next we see Abigail protecting David. Again, something that we wouldn't expect. So Abigail, she is called discerning and beautiful by the text. She's the wife of Nabal. She hears what's going on and she decides to fix it. She apparently is able to prepare quickly lots and lots of food maybe having a lot of this stuff on hand because of the upcoming party. She's basically preparing a gift for a king, though he isn't acting like one at this time. And here she is saving her husband and his household from destruction under no prompting at all from Nabal. She actually attempts to do this in secret, which she actually gets away with, even though her husband's name means fool. And she she points forward to this. She says, my husband is acting like his name suggests, in folly. This doesn't mean that Nabal is dumb. The word fool here actually means godless. The fool says there is no God. Nabal is doing that, even though Abigail is acting in a very godly way. wonder how these two found one another. In doing this, who does she actually save? Not Nabal. Nabal's unsavable at this point. I think we see that. She saves David, who needed saving at this point. If David were to follow through with his plans, what would we probably be reading of? Well, we would definitely read a story that was similar to chapter 22, where Saul massacred the priests. And then we would probably later read of a new king needing to be selected because David has been disqualified. And so her quick thinking on David's behalf is an act of grace for him. Look at verses 32 and 34. David picks up on this. I think David, uh, for all of his character issues, definitely recognizes his own sin and admits to it quickly. 
verses 32 through 34. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. For surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there had not been one there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. So Abigail, this person that David has never met up to this point, this person who has no reason to help him, decides to help him, and David is pleased. But what else is happening here? What else is the Lord doing by restraining David and by sending Abigail to meet David? She's also protecting Ab- or he's also protecting Abigail. Nabal is partying and making merry. Abigail doesn't tell him anything until the morning so that he can understand the full weight of going on. And when she does, it causes him to, says his heart stops and he turns to stone, probably something like a stroke maybe. And then ten days later, it says the Lord finishes him off. We have no idea how a godless man like Nabal and a godly woman like Abigail would end up together, but they did. Now Abigail is delivered from his treachery and from his foolishness, and all of his servants, for that matter, are also delivered through his death. And it may seem harsh to see his death as a delivery or redemption, but, nearly, but he had nearly killed them all. And so him being dead and the household being under someone else may be the best thing that could have happened to them. And now Abigail, she becomes the second wife of David, which again, not a good thing. But from her vantage point, she's given safety and provision until or after her husband's death. And so what do we do with these different stories and these different uh, coincidences, you know, in quotations there? I bet we could all point to things in our lives that have played themselves out very similar to these situations. What I mean is that we could look back at things that seemingly didn't make any sense in our lives and see them as as the Lord's gift of grace to us. You guys have heard me tell the story about how... uh, I worked fast food for several years and worked retail, two jobs that um, I did not like at all um, because you often get treated like you're less than human. Um, But how those jobs prepared me for being able to work with people on a regular basis, prepared me for ministry. At the time, I had no idea what the Lord was doing, but he knew and it helped I don't know why I was possessed to jump through the hoops to keep my certifications current, all of my education certifications current throughout the years of ministry, because let me tell you, there are some hoops to jump through. But I did that. I just thought maybe this is a good idea because the Lord knew the rest of my story, even though I didn't. He knew that we'd be here, that I'd be teaching school in like the best high school in the state of Kentucky. Pretty incredible. Think of our church. Think of all the chance meetings, chance meetings that we've had that have brought us all together as his people here in this building. Even that we're here in this building is incredible, worshiping together. 
the Lord doesn't do random. It's a word that is definitely overused today. But there's never anything in the kingdom of God that is ever mixed up or misplaced. It is exactly how he meant it to be. We may not understand why the beautiful and discerning Abigail ends up with the foolish and harsh Nabal. But the Lord knew why that would take place. We don't know why David's men ended up in Nabal's pastures instead of someone else's. Why he didn't just kill the sheep, but just a few of them, no one would notice, instead of taking care of Nabal's men. But the Lord took care of it. He knew these things. And I think we have lots of opportunities in our lives to see the Lord's work and his direct influence over our own narratives, our own stories. We have opportunities to see these things, but do we? We can't see them because we're thick-headed and short-sighted oftentimes. We're ready to strap on the sword more quickly than we should. Yet the Lord gives us grace to see them later, which is very good, and they increase our faith. And so let us remember the Lord is good to his people. He keeps us safe, safe even from ourselves. And so next I want to look at this idea that sin, or, or sin that doesn't make sense. And so first, David begins this narrative making a great decision. You know, we, we come off the previous narrative where he cut the robe of, of Saul and he felt really bad for it. And he like repents to Saul and they have this kind of moment together that leads us, leads us thinking, well, maybe things are going to be good in Israel. And now David, he, uh, at the very beginning of this narrative, he makes another great moral decision in helping the sheep. Again, it doesn't really surprise us of him. It shows us that he has a great command over his troops. Uh, remember, these troops aren't necessarily hardened soldiers, ones that are probably ready to take orders, but yet David has control over them. They're, and it's not just a few men, it's several hundred men. He keeps them from killing the sheep, which shouldn't surprise us. David's been in control of hundreds of men in his life. He does a good thing here. And up to this point, that basically is what we've come to expect of him. And then all of a sudden, Nabal calls him some names, not new to David. Remember, he's had spears thrown at him in his own house. But yet, he straps on the sword and he's ready to kill an entire farm worth of people. And why? Because he asked them for something, and they called him names instead. Nabal denied David's provisions. And remember, why is Nabal bound to give David anything? David is a criminal of the state, and so why would he be bound to give him anything? Sure, Nabal said, who is David? Who is Jesse? Why is this criminal coming around here? But David is used to this. Whatever the case, something finally provoked David this time, and he was ready to root to murder everyone, leaving the children fatherless, the women without providers, which again in the ancient Jewish culture, this is a sentence of lifetime of begging and hunger for these women. So what changed in David? How did he go from the one that was sorry that he cut off the corner of Saul's robe to being one that was ready to do to Nabal like he did to Goliath. What changed? Maybe the stress was finally getting to him. Maybe his men were influencing him. Maybe he's really just a bloodthirsty animal and this whole time he's been fooling us. 
I don't think that's the case, the latter, the, the bloodthirsty animal part, because we, we have the rest of the story to read. But we really don't know what changed other than Nabal personally insulting him and his father. Had it not been for Abigail, again, we might have had to appoint a new king by the end of this book because David would have been disqualified from that office for being a murderer. Well, this part of the story, I think, really hit home for me, especially when you read stories of seemingly godly people who do the dumbest things, who ruin their lives, their families' lives, in a single instant of bad judgment. Good people that we would call good. And then all of a sudden, they do something dumb that you're like, what? That doesn't make any sense. How does it happen? How can someone who is God-fearing and Bible-believing one day, the next day, be ready to convert to atheism? Seen it happen. How do great Christian kids with great Christian parents end up pregnant before marriage? We've all seen that happen. Why do pastors cheat on their spouses? Why do elders steal thousands from churches? Why do Christian homemakers become alcoholics? Why do these things happen? I don't know how they happen. I don't know all the events that occur to make them, but I know one reason why. We begin to believe that we are above those things. And we slowly let our own righteousness take over. Well, I'm better than that. I'm better than that. I hear the story of the pastor who, who uh, cheated on his spouse after 30 years of marriage. I'm better than that. I hear the story of Christian kids doing crazy things. My kids are better than that. It's the first thing that we say, right? It's our own righteousness that begins to take over. And when that happens, whatever we commit to do becomes a good thing. We get to define good at that point, whether or not it actually is. And at some point, we begin to say that bad things are good things. And you're seeing this in the evangelical church right now as pastors who just 10 years ago upheld the torch of Sola Scriptura, who upheld the torch of by faith alone, through grace alone, and who are now advocating some sort of weird experiential type of religion. What happens to them? Little by little, they begin to trust in themselves rather than their Lord Jesus Christ. It could be due to stress or trials or some sort of new condition that's entered into their life. It could just be a bad day. But whatever it is, we, brothers and sisters, have to be ready. Turn with me to James chapter 1. As I was preparing this message, I read through James 1 and just kept going. James is an incredible book. And I read the entire thing. Just because it just it's just like one long sermon. Uh, I don't want to do that this morning, but I will read most of chapter 1 because I want us to see this in light of what we've just seen with David, in light of what we've just talked about, 
Look at James chapter 1, starting at verses, verse 2. And again, consider what we've just looked at, this idea of are we capable of this type of sin? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower fails and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted, cannot for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And listen to this. This is important. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my fellow brothers. Every good and every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, of of his own will, he brought forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So let this soak in for a moment. What is James telling us? That we have to be ready. The trial is coming. Those times when we'll be tested are coming. Those times when we'll need wisdom from the Lord are coming. And what happens when we ask of it? He will give it to us. We shouldn't doubt that at all. To doubt that the Lord would give his people wisdom, James says that that is a double-minded person unstable in their ways the lord will give wisdom to those who ask for it the trial is coming and if we think that we are above it we deceive ourselves which leads to sin which leads to death and he goes on to say in verse 22 that we should be doers of the word not hearers only and that's really the key is it not David may have forgotten the promises of God for just a moment, and that's all it took. And he had to take his destiny into his own hands. He had to feed his people, and he took that into his own hands. He forgot the promises of God, and what were they to David? That he would be a king, that the Lord would always have a people for himself. 
And David's going to have to be reminded of this several times during his reign as king. The Lord always points him back to the promises. The ones that David looks forward to. Knowing that God will see them to fruition. And how does God do that? How does God answer the promises that were given to David? The ones that we see over and over again in scripture. Of course through the person and the work of Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the one that David looks forward to, and he is the one that we should look to as well. We have no hope outside of him. We have no righteousness apart from his. And so in conclusion, our relationship with God ensures that grace in our lives is specific. It is sustaining to us because of what Christ did for us. We don't have to guess as believers whether or not God is looking out for us, whether or not he's going to do what is best for us. We don't have to guess whether or not the situations in our, work, in our lives will work out because we know that he keeps his promises. Now, that doesn't mean that we get to define what's good. That doesn't mean that. We get to define what it means to our lives to work out. Sometimes the appearances of things that are happening might be strange. I think some of us have even experienced that this week. Sometimes being stuck on the side of the road with a busted brake line. Maybe the Lord's way of telling us something or seeing us through. Kind of going down like going down the water slide without no tube. Seems a little crazy. But whatever it is, the Lord is good and He is in control. And we can rest in that. Jesus' death makes sure that our inconsistency is covered as well. The righteousness of Christ makes sure that when we are inconsistent, those times that we want to just strap on the sword and go kill everybody and act stupid, that we are covered because He never did that. Jesus never did that. He never strapped on his sword, even though he could have. He could have called down every angel to his defense, but yet he went willingly to the cross. He took on death and in obedience walked to the cross for those who can't even obey in the first ten minutes of the morning. And now risen, he sits at the right hand of the Father, praying to the Father on our behalf. We have a good Savior brothers and sisters, and let us worship him and remember his promises to us. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we consider the promises that you've made, as we prepare ourselves to come to your table, the one that you have set before us, we recognize that you have given us a life beyond our wildest dreams one that we look forward to you being with you in eternity. Maybe this life is not what we would call good or the best or whatever, but we wait for you because we know that you keep your promises. Lord, help us to wait. Help us to know that what you are doing is right and good, even when things seem crazy in our lives. And Lord, help us to... Be consistent. Help us to be one who, ones who do the word rather than just hear it. But help us to be ones who live 
our lives in such a way so that people may know that you are Lord and Creator. You are God. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.